0: Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 3rd of November, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson. Self, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Vanessa Beely and uh, also by Alex Thompson. Alex, of course, bringing us uh,
1: Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Uh, well, we'll get straight on with uh, COP26. And again, I'm going to apologise to everybody for doing this, but I just thought it was worthwhile. I'll just have a listen for coming, for joining us. It's all too easy to come to a summit like this and get caught up in a mood of exaggerated enthusiasm uh, simply because of the very nature of of diplomacy and the instinct to uh, be polite. So as this first stage of the COP26 draws to a close, and don't forget there are still two weeks of detailed negotiation to come, we must take care to guard against false hope and not to think of in any way that the job is done, because it is not. There is still a very long way to go. So Boris oh. Boris, <laughs> pretending that it's not all uh, failing and ending and in a big heap, but there's still a long way to go. So why are we mentioning this? Well, of course, uh, there are a couple of announcements already been made. But before we get to them, I just thought this was a particularly striking Image of uh, of uh, Joe Biden with Ursula von der Leyen. Um, not quite sure what he's communicating there, Brian. Uh,
0: well, I think he's got an evil glint in his eye, is what I see. Well, um, indeed, is the right age for him is the question. Oh, that's a very good question. Um, but the other thing—it's fascinating to see these photographs where everybody is wearing a face mask, because of course we're going to will be discovering a little bit later that uh, this was a fairly random act of protection of the public.
1: Well, uh, well, of course, no public there, but uh, but look, he couldn't keep his hands off her, nonetheless. So anyway, why are we mentioning uh, Biden and and Ursula von der Leyen? Well, they and Boris Johnson have announced uh, commitments to addressing the climate crisis through infrastructure development. So they're going to develop the infrastructure all around the place. Uh, they uh, this is building they say on the June. Uh, commitment of the G seven leaders to meet to launch a values driven, high standard and transparent infrastructure partnership to meet global infrastructure development needs. That should make you feel very good, Brian. <laughs> uh, so, so they uh, hosted a discussion. Uh, it included uh, representatives from Bar- uh, Barbadian Prime Minister uh, Motley, uh, Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau, Colombian uh, President uh, Duque, the Ecuadorian President, Democratic Republic of Congo President, the Indian Prime Minister. Uh, Japanese Prime Minister, Nigerian President, so it was really fantastic stuff, Um, and of course this is all about uh, the Build Back Better world, it's all about the global gateway and the clean green initiatives, because this is going to jumpstart investment, sharpen focus and mobilise resources. I mean, you couldn't make up the language that's being used, but nonetheless, uh, there was one paragraph that I thought was particularly striking, and that was that they will consult with stakeholders including representatives of civil society, governments, NGOs, and the private sector. And I just thought that was, uh, if we could just welcome Alex to the program. First of all, Alex, I thought that was really striking um, because uh, governments only came second on that list. Civil society came first uh, and then NGOs uh, and the private sector last of all. Um, So how, how are we being governed these days?
2: It seems that if civil society is first, then it's the civil services of the West that are doing it. Because even in my time over a decade ago, the talk was of engaging civil society. And it increasingly dawned upon me that this meant bringing in pet people who would repeat your own mantras and uh, pre-cooked ideas from effectively taxpayer-funded or tax-exempt foundation-funded think tanks and activist bodies. Uh, But it is indeed quite spectacular to have government second on the list. The whole model, of course, is that of participatory democracy. The whole idea of representative democracy has entirely gone by the board. And I will never tire of saying that the party system leads this way, of course, because as soon as you vote for a party manifesto, you voted for the lot. You've given them, the governing party, the power to go away and pre-cook agendas. You can say no to no part of it once they're in office.
0: Uh, Indeed. Can I just add to that that, of course, it was pernicious political charity Common Purpose that said its objective was to fill the space, as it described it, between the wider public and government. So they said there was a a disconnect and the Common Purpose was going to get its future leaders in. So that was further raising the power of the people that you're talking about, Alex, and suppressing uh, the general public as as a key part of democracy, if we can believe in democracy, in having the vote and being able to make decisions through juries.
1: Uh, But I'm sure all these uh, uh, third world countries are really excited about this infrastructure development program. And not least because, of course, Rishi Sunak Sunak was uh, making an announcement. Uh, And what was he announcing? Well, let's have a look. Uh, Nearly 500 financial services firms from across the world have agreed to align align $130 trillion dollars of the assets they hold to the climate goals in the Paris Agreement. So 130 trillion dollars is 40% of the world's financial assets uh, are going to be aligned with these climate goals. Uh, He described this as historic. He said that the commitments will help create a huge pool of cash that would fund net zero transition, including the move away from coal, the shift to electric cars, and the planting of more trees. How many trees can you plant with uh, with 130 trillion dollars, do you think? Probably the whole Uh, planet. Yes. Uh, So what's left for growing food? Uh, (laughs) Not a lot. Not a lot. Uh, So this is because the UK has a responsibility to lead the way uh, and uh, bring a fresh push to decarbonize our world, uh, leading financial center. Uh, And so they're going to guard against greenwashing by having a transition plan task force, uh, which is composed of industry and academic leaders, regulators, and civil society groups. Um, so, anyway, uh, this is the organization that he's launched, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. Uh, and I just thought if you look at the bottom of the screen there, it says achieving the objective of the Paris Agreement to limit global temperature increases to 1.5 degrees C uh, from pre industrial levels. And that requires a whole economy transition. But of course, we've heard that term before uh, because uh, this is the term that Mark Carney used two years ago a whole economy transition. Uh, And of course, in order to to achieve that whole of economy transition, we're going to bankrupt everybody, including financial companies that don't put their money into uh, the green agenda. So, uh, but the key here was that one of the things that Rishi said was this, uh, we need to mobilize private finance quickly and at scale. So what we have here is a recognition, I believe, uh, or an admission rather is probably a better word, uh, that what they are doing is mobilizing private finance as quickly as they possibly can at scale before the whole system collapses uh, in order to uh, push forward with a global change agenda. This is not about uh, climate change, this is about behavioural change, Alex, it's about societal change, governmental change.
2: Yes, as you were reading that, Mike, I was very struck by uh, a podcast I've just recorded with my father, which I'll be transcribing in the days to come and putting up, because uh, when he was talking about the uh, financial and behavioral change embedded in the churches, especially the Church of England, he pointed out that the current generation of bishops believe really in only one thing, which is that they need to wreck the structure before the lay, the, the lay people who actually believe in the values of the institution get so uh, powerful or so well-informed that they can actually take things over and run it themselves. And this, is, this could be said of, of uh, what the, the governments and the, especially the, um, the, the corporate powers behind governments are doing too. What you uh, read there brings out a spirit of, this is our chance to wreck it, otherwise the blighters will carry on with traditional life and we can't have that. Uh, I wonder if uh, perhaps I can back things over to Vanessa, at this point, because as I was uh, listening to all that, I was wondering how would a country like Syria, obviously very cynically and indifferently perhaps, but how would they respond to this idea that the capital markets of the world are being leveraged to induce behavioural change in you? I just wonder how relevant that is to the majority of the world that lives in countries like Syria that do not have extra trillions to burn. Um,
3: com- completely irrelevant is <laughs> my answer to that. I think. If I went out on the streets and, and said that to anyone passing by, they would just look at me and said, well, who cares? We just want bread and food and gas and water and electricity. <laughs> like, Who cares about the trees or who cares about behavioral uh, influencing? I mean, it, no, I mean, you know, all of these concepts. And by the way, you know, the planting of trees, of course, we know that they're they're behind the scenes, probably logging the majority of of the real trees and looking at replacing them with uh, GMO trees um, to provide (laughs) the carbon dioxide that we need. Um, No, I mean, I I don't know, in countries like Syria... um, Uh, How do I describe it? I mean, all of this feels, I'll talk about this later regarding Corona, um, but all of this just feels hugely far away. They have far more real threats to deal with.
1: Yes, indeed. Thank you very much, Vanessa, for that. Um, So let's move on to uh, uh, security at the COP26. Of course, uh, we've got a huge police presence there. Uh, That's been in the mainstream press, but uh, Uh, Somebody uh, contacted us today with a little bit of additional information that I thought would put a smile on some people's faces. Before we get to that, uh, this is Glasgow Live, uh, COP26. councillor raises questions about Metropolitan Police in Glasgow, and really she was upset about the Met coming to Glasgow because of uh, recent Metropolitan Police controversies. Uh, But anyway, this is what uh, she asked. It was uh, Eileen McKenzie from Glasgow City Council. What engagement has there been uh, with the Metropolitan Police ahead of their presence in the city? Uh, And uh, well, here's Jennifer Layden, who uh, was council representative that uh, replied to that, said officers, wherever they are in the city, will be under the jurisdiction of Police Scotland and will follow their direction. Uh, The only exception will be the area around the SEC, which is designated as a United Nations zone and is secured by the United Nations. Um, So uh, we'll come on to that, back to that with Alex in a second. But uh, uh, here is the Police Scotland uh, plans. This is their press release on this. Uh, which they actually issued back in June, uh, plans for the UK's biggest policing operations to support COP26. 10,000 officers deployed each day during the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow, one of the largest policing operations undertaken in Britain, they said. Uh, but this was, uh, this was the comment that we were, set, that we were sent this morning. Um, so uh, the person concerned was heading south from Glasgow and saw the police fans coming in the other direction. Uh, they stopped counting when they reached 200. Uh, Later on, I spoke to some of the police at the motorway services and they told me there were 8,000 traveling up from English, at least uh, south of the border, constabories, uh, and they were traveling up socially distanced four to a van. So, uh, Alex, uh, I think that's quite an ironic situation that they couldn't just take the train perhaps and and use the most uh, uh, green uh, transport mechanism. They wanted to take vans uh, and they needed to be socially distanced.
2: Possibly their donut consumption would be too conspicuous in uh, railway carriages. I don't know. But uh, no undue undue offence meant to our our finest coppers. But if you have 8,000 of them, and we'll go on that as prima facie true, uh, Glasgow, of course, is one of Britain's largest cities, by far Scotland's largest city, and has many tens of thousands of police in it anyway. But with that kind of proportion, the excuse wears rather thin that they'll be under Scottish command the whole time. Uh, for those watching from abroad, Scots law is a completely different legal system. Well, not in every single point, I'm at pace to stress, it has a common law basis, but there are many indictable, that is, arrestable offences, one side of the border that are not easily indictable the other, and vice versa. And what is common to both jurisdictions, of course, is that the individual PC, at least Constable, is liable at law for their actions and failure to act when they're acting on their oath. So, uh, you know, you might find that actually some of these metropolitan and other English and Welsh constables uh, effecting an arrest as per orders are left in the lurch when it's found that they have breached Scots law. And I think you were hinting also at the UN zone in the middle there, Mike. This is routine. We've seen this in a lot of US cities and Swiss cities that either permanently or temporarily play host to United Nations venues. But with the advent of uh, easily filmed encounters uh, due to mobile technology and streaming, uh, we have now seen UN police from who knows where, completely third countries uh, securing these venues and saying, in the, in the case of an American venue, US law does not apply here. And they have everything in the Swiss model as well with the t- diplomatic agreements that are signed. We now know that Bill Gates' is, Gavi has such an agreement and the Bank for International Settlements, not just the UN. Within those buildings, everything up to the use of lethal force is, is uh, treaty protected, uh, That is UN officers only. So uh, one way or another, disaster will strike. It's not for no reason that British transport police who operate both sides of the English and Scottish border have to swear two different oaths to operate in the two different legal systems. Those English constables will not have sworn a Scottish oath for this purpose.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. But uh, in that in that Glasgow uh, uh, news article, it said it made the point that representatives and experts all have diplomatic immunity, meaning they're exempt from the legal process. So that's people that are in the in the main area itself. Um, so, you know, it doesn't really matter what criminal acts are 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 committed; uh, they they are immune for that anyway.
0: And I would just like to know if those UN personnel are armed on British soil.
1: Uh, well, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, now let's uh, move on to Newsweek, and uh, we made uh, sort of made this point on Monday as well, but I thought it was worth reinforcing, uh, because of course what uh, Boris is talking about is removing coal as as one example from the energy mix. Um, and they're particularly keen on removing coal from third world countries, which is potentially a disaster for those countries. So this uh, is Newsweek. It's an opinion piece uh, from the president of Nigeria, and it's entitled "The uh, Climate Crisis Will Not Be Fixed by Causing an Energy Crisis in Africa." So uh, a couple of uh, things that he says here: dire warnings of the end of the world are as cold as, or, sorry, as old as civilization itself. But each year as the countdowns to the United Nations climate change conference begins, they grow in volume and intensity. He said it's an inconvenient truth but energy solutions proposed by those most eager to address the climate crisis are fuel for the instability uh, of which they warn. Uh, For today's 1.3 billion Africans access to low cost and reliable energy is the highest of all possible concerns and that kind of echoes what Vanessa has just said about Syria. Uh, Without extra and stable power We cannot build the factories that will transform Africa from low job uh, sorry, extractives led economy uh, to a high employment middle income continent. Uh, It also seems unnoticed that our global rush for electric cars, uh, we risk replacing the last century scramble for fossil fuels with a new global race in lithium for batteries. Uh, Where significant deposits are to be found, such as in Africa, this could uh, endanger geopolitical stability. Uh, fossil fuel power generated uh, generation that can provide electricity 24 hours a day in all conditions can be retooled greener through carbon capture uh, and the conversion of coal and heavy fuel oil power stations to biomass. I'm not sure that he's quite on the on the button with that particular comment because, of course, uh, if you start using biomass in uh, on a continent where you have uh, food shortages already, this isn't necessarily the best strategy. But anyway. Uh, He goes on to say, and we can also learn from our friends in Europe and America who do not always practice what they preach. Uh, We call on them to lift the moratorium they've placed on fossil fuel investments in Africa. Uh, And uh, well, a number of points there, Alex, but I thought the the geopolitical point was particularly poignant.
2: Yes, and President Buhari, as often with Nigerian orators, is using very layered English and having some subtle Statement like Diggs at hypocrisy. Well, he, he mentioned hypocrisy towards the end, but for not for nothing did he choose the word scramble when he's speaking about the scramble for fossil fuels and now the scramble for uh, rare earth metals, because, of course, the period around 1880 is known to geopolitical historians as the scramble for Africa. When every country tried to carve out first its colonies and then within them its concessions, which closer to where Vanessa is in the Near East, certainly Iran, concessions became a major issue because there were railways straight from the coast up to where the uh, oil or coal was extracted. And in, in the new version, it will be rare earth metals. So he's he's definitely onto something There is President Buhari. And he also dropped in a, a good reference there to an inconvenient truth. This, of course, is uh, former U.S. Vice President Al Gore's catchphrase uh, and the film that he touted around the world. Uh, where he claimed, of course, and the people behind him, that the inconvenient truth was that the earth was warming up, therefore we must stop using hydrocarbons. Rather, the opposite seems to be the case now. It seems as more evidence comes to the fore. But such evidence, of course, is only described and discussed at government level in countries like Nigeria and Zimbabwe, uh, not in the more benighted realms of London and Washington. Indeed. Indeed.
0: OK, well, a number of uh, things, of course, coming out of COP26 that won't be in the full view of the public, but they are there. We're searching some of those out. Let's have a look at AIM for Climate, Agricultural Innovation Mission for Climate, working to enable solutions at the intersection of agriculture and climate. It's quite clear from this and many other organisations and documents that we are not going to be allowed to grow our own food in a simple, sustainable way as would be suitable for Africa in particular. No, we've got people coming in to control everything from the seeds to the technology used. This is one of the embedded videos in this particular website. Uh, There's no sound to it, but I'll just let it run on screen so that people can see what's happening. And the key thing about this is it's collaboration between the um, US and the United Arab Arab Emirates Mm. Um, huge amounts of uh, money being put together. Agriculture agriculture itself apparently produces 25% of greenhouse gases. So growing our own food is dangerous, according to these people. And uh, if you see some of the other videos, you're going to be looking at uh, robots uh, doing the planting and the harvesting. So we're going to get rid of the interaction where people are able to um, be growing and uh, looking after their food. So they're going to focus in on this uh, sector and we're going to be grateful that uh, UAE has pledged one billion uh, for this particular initiative with 80 partners and 32 other countries. You, of course, were reading some of the COP26 countries off, Mike, but all of them brought forward into uh, one big club and it's going to control agriculture. Mm. If you want a little little bit more detail on it, uh, here's what they're aiming for. Uh, So they're going to demonstrate collective commitment to significantly increase investment, support frameworks and structures to enable technical discussions and the promotion of expertise, knowledge and priorities across international it goes on it's all this internationalist it? language yeah. again right establish appropriate stru- structures for exchange, exchange between ministers and chief scientists i'm struggling with some of this myself scope scientific breakthroughs public and private applied research development demonstration deployment um then of course the big thing is this draws together a, a vast number of countries and people so Uh, Huge amounts of money, huge power, but not in the ordinary voter. Here's the countries listed, so you can see the scale of this operation alone, taking control of agriculture and food production. Uh, But my eye was caught by this one, uh, where we're broadening away to other organizations, not just nation states. And I wonder how many people can spot it. Let's blow up a couple of these. Uh, Well, first on the list, we're back into Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the man addressing COP26 and coughing his head off. Uh, But in the background, he's now into controlling world food supplies. Uh, We've got the Henry Ford Foundation. Uh, We've also got the World Economic Forum. And I just want to remind people that a few days ago, the BBC was using this lady, Charlize Theron, uh, actress who was telling us that we should all be vaccinated, But the BBC was kind enough to point out that she'd recently joined that very same Ford Foundation. Um, But of course, she's also a World Economic Forum young global leader. So we can't be, we can't just take these organisations at face value. We've got to see what change agents they're using in the background. And just to get a little bit of black humour into things, credit where it's due, a, a truly astonishing headline from the BBC. Uh, COP26, the sheer hypocrisy of environment damaging gas guzzling private jets for a global climate change conference. I thought, my goodness, what has the BBC done? Finally, the BBC wakes up to the mix of insanity and hypocrisy of Bill Gates and the climate change cult. But the bad news is that this couldn't possibly be a real headline. Uh, So let's have a look at what the BBC did say. Well, they just said, what's the climate impact of private jets? So uh, they weren't going to hit anybody on the nose. But what they said is that a large number of flights had come in, 182, which is about double the total for the previous six days. Uh, there's another report from aviation analytics company Sirium that said there was a total of 76 flights in the four days leading up to the 1st of uh, November. And if we go on, they then go into the analysis. So there's many different models of jets. They chose one, a Cessna Citation, which burns 1,023 litres per hour on average. And then they calculated a trip from Rome. That's an appropriate place, 2,813 litres. They then looked at carbon dioxide production, 7.1 tonnes but you've got to correct that because the planes are at height and that changes to damage effectively of 13.5 tons. But each aircraft carries nine people. Uh, so that's one and a half tons. Uh, if they'd gone on a normal commercial flight, uh, it would have been a production about a quarter of a ton. So if we just underline these so that we can see what we're talking about. So the COP26 TOFs were burning up one5 tons, but we're not allowed to fly, Mike, because we consume a quarter of a ton. And the BBC brought in an expert. Uh, Here she is. This is Debbie Hopkins, and she said a huge amount of fuel is used during takeoff and landing of a plane, no matter how many people you have on board. So an already polluting mode of transport, commercial aviation, becomes even worse with private jets. Uh, We'll just sum up by saying, well, of course, the BBC... Utter nonsense is not addressing the hypocrisy at all, even though they were busy saying in their own report that the world is warming because of emissions from fossil fuels. So, BBC, I think we're going to give the propaganda and fake news uh, uh, award to. But I want to give um, a big (laughs) promotion to um, Melanie Phillips, who has come up with a truly amazing article. It says world leaders have made complete fools of themselves. At COP26. I think she means fools of the public, but nevertheless, this is what, what she says. What could happen, would happen, if a doomsday cult were to take over the world? Science fiction? No. It's happened. Far, far worse has been the total erasure of rationality in the hysterical chorus that this was the last chance to save the planet. And the fact that no one in mainstream debate has challenged this as, quote, utter, unscientific garbage. So I think we're going to give Melanie Phillips the uh, prize today. But she could have been reporting on this years ago, couldn't she?
1: Well, she could but that's uh, the parallels between this and COVID of course, are not uh, an area that Melanie Phillips wants to go to at least not as far as I know. So, so, uh, you know, if we put that just back up on screen for one second, the total erasure of rationality and the hysterical chorus, uh, the fact that no one in mainstream debate has challenged this utter unscientific garbage that could equally apply to the last 18 months of government COVID policy. Uh, in fact, if you take it out of context, you wouldn't know what she was talking about.
0: Well, we're we going to be highlighting some of that later in the news, Mike. So, But uh, there we go. Hypocrisy of the BBC was the main thrust.
1: Well, let's look at hypocrisy on, on ITV then. And uh, this has been doing the round. So we just thought, uh, in case anybody hadn't seen it, we'd briefly show it. It's uh, Dr Hilary Jones and uh, Richard Midley on Good Morning Britain, I think. Uh,
0: Dr Hilary, um, let's talk about this hoax leaflet, first of all, which, which you've got, which is a, a oh clear yeah, Just, 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 just beware, clear um,
1: be, beware of bogus
0: um, uh, letter drops, um, which is complete nonsense. So it's, this is misinformation. What is it? But you it's, just hold it to camera. It, through, it's, yep. it's, it's just, it, it looks like a, a government UK yellow card. Um, reporting scheme for adverse reactions to any kind of medicines or, or vaccines, but this purports to, to talk about uh, all sorts of adverse reactions to vaccines, which are completely bogus and hoax. So it's an
2: anti-vaccine. Absolutely, yeah. and this this would put a lot of people off oh. the vaccine uh, dangerously because it's it's complete um, uh, it's complete misinformation. Okay, so if you get it, absolutely,
0: absolutely. Fine. One bit of good news: <laughs> I was sitting in a restaurant the other day, and somebody came up to from- me.
1: So he was sitting in a restaurant the other day, but that doesn't matter. The point is that uh, the the the, uh, the leaflet itself, um, I can't find a single thing that you could possibly say was factually incorrect in it. First of all, it's uh, quoting uh, uh, significant, MHRA. Well, yes, it's it's promoting the MHRA yellow card system. It's it's quoting uh, significant scientific voices uh, and. Uh, and it's telling people how to uh, view the documentation from the MHRA on the uh, on adverse reactions. So it is not in any way. And in fact, uh, at the bottom of the, the back page, it's talking about common side effects, such as sore arm, feeling tired, headache, and so on. And it's talking about rare side effects and the number of people that have experienced those rare side effects. So it's accurate. it is absolutely accurate. There's no misinformation on this leaflet at all. Now, uh, I believe that this has gone out in the tens of thousands. Um, So I can see why uh, certain people would be upset to see it going, uh, being pushed through people's letterboxes, particularly because it it looks like it has come from, uh, at least it's using the gov.uk logo and yellow card logos from the MHRA. So I suppose the only criticism that anybody could make, and I don't think it is a valid criticism, is that it uh, it, uh, looks like it has come from a government source. It's too
0: government-like, but it refers to it accurately refers to government information on the MHRA or a yellow card system and on screen it's torn up even though it's pointing to the government's documentation and they've even taken the clip down on the um, archived footage of that particular episode so the whole section that segment has been taken out because clearly you mustn't tell the British public that the MHRA is recording vaccine adverse effects. Thousands of people died, millions of adverse effects, but we mustn't tell the British people that information.
1: Uh, And of course, if you want a a better, well, a a better uh, option for looking at adverse reactions compared to the MHRAs, uh, rather pathetic documentation, uh, head over to to Yellowcar.ukcolumn.org for uh, a sort of front end on that. But uh, a similar front end uh, for Vigi Access, Alex, uh, and uh, you've just—we're not going to—we're not going to run through this whole thing, Alex. But we can talk. We can talk it through here. So this is a Vigi Access website. Just remind everybody what this
2: is. As it says right there, it was launched by the World Health Organization in 2015 to give access to the WHO's database. And I'm now highlighting on the front page of vigiaccess.org that you are to search for the exact string COVID-19 vaccine with a hyphen on the next page in order to find the world aggregated uh, potential side effects. So this is from the yellow card scheme and all the other national and EU level equivalents. And of course, you have to tick uh, a warning on the front page confirming that you've understood their caveats, then I've deliberately entered, first of all, a couple of common miss search strings to show that it's not user-friendly. COVID won't work. COVID-19 won't work on that second screen. But if you then type in COVID-19 vaccine, you get the magic results. Here we have adverse drug reactions listed. There's 2,444,292 to date that have come into the World Health Organization. If we look at these, we find there's about 100,000 blood disorder uh, uh, reports, so these are individual yellow card or equivalents from other countries. Uh, 150,000 odd, uh, sorry, that's uh, uh, one and a half million general disorders, a very large category. Each of the subcategories has its own sub-subcategories of great uh, number, for example, blood disorders, and then here the heart disorders. The numbers, of course, are individuals who have told the regulator in one country or territory of the world that they uh, experienced such an adverse reaction, which they cannot definitively blame on COVID vaccines, but are uh, suspecting that it was. Uh, so, this is again, pyrexia is a burning sensation. Half a million people worldwide have actually jumped through all the hoops to report that to the authorities. That's one of the less serious ones, uh, but very numerous. Injury, poisoning and procedural complications has over 100,000 infections. Now there's 55,000 people here or more if you tot up all the different sub uh, reporting um, uh, rubrics here. Uh, Tens of thousands, perhaps 100,000 people say they suspect they got COVID-19 from being jabbed. There's another uh, one that I've just highlighted, exposure to SARS-CoV-2, is more people saying the same thing in different words, so counted in a different category. There's a category called investigations here, Uh, SARS-CoV test positive. I think this is yet another way of people saying, I took one of those jabs and afterwards, I still tested positive for COVID. We then get on to metabolism and nutrition disorders. So that's all the gut problems that people have, some trivial, some far from trivial. Musculoskeletal and connective tissue disorders, three quarters of a million including uh, the two top categories there myalgia and arthralgia is is uh, aching nerves and joints there's, there's tens or hundreds of thousands of them neoplasms is cancer plus other growths as a whole category many of them um, um okay, nervous so I, system disorders
1: yeah okay so alex uh, that, that's that's pretty clear and and very similar therefore to what's going on in the uk uh, and i guess in in other parts of the world as well but uh, what i was interested to fa- to get from you was what what What's the World Health Organization saying that they're doing with this data?
2: Absolutely nothing, as I have heard. This website is only being shared by the likes of Doctors for COVID Ethics. And again, it's a bit like at UK level, the UK column being associated with uh, this naughty behavior of talking about the yellow card scheme. This is happening at world level. These websites seem only to be consulted by people who are skeptical about the COVID jabs and therefore uh, they're not being uh, drawn attention to, they're not being talked about. Uh, None of the health bodies I'm aware of have mentioned it in great detail. When I got to this stage on the page, I decided to see whether there was any mention of death. And if I'm not mistaken, it was mentioned under the category of social disorders. And uh, there was even some mention of D-dimer, that's D-hyphen D-I-M-E-R, which uh, only I think Doctors for COVID Ethics pointed out in the early days are the protein fragments that indicate that blood clotting has happened somewhere else and it's gone through your bloodstream. So some people have been wise enough, thanks to Doctors for COVID Ethics and like-minded doctors, to report to their national and now global health authorities uh, that having taken a COVID jab, they have had a D-dimer test taken, although many doctors are told not to uh, to do them. and. Uh, have found that uh, that they uh, they had there it is it's coming up now D dimer uh, that they found as a result that there had been uh, clotting uh, taking place uh, as a result uh, people also uh, wise enough to say I had problems after I mixed and matched the two or three different suppliers of COVID jab and uh, very recently Dr Peter McCullough in Texas made that point very strongly and I think the speech of the year that he gave where he spoke about um, how ridiculous it was for politicians to be saying you must take the jab, we must make the jab mandatory. When, in terms of milligrams of dosage, they vary vary by three times, uh, one one more than the other of the active ingredient. So, you know, the the mRNA, uh, what what's going on there is, is is anyone's guess. But you know, it's it's <laughs> I, I know it's often used on this program that one is speechless. But you know, we we've, we've seen the visual evidence there at quite some length, hundreds of thousands of people. And even you know, if you look at the bottom of the page, the stats show that this is only very largely Europe and America and very largely people of working age who filled in these results, three quarters women and three quarters the age between 18 and 65. So if we look worldwide, of course, those least likely to report the same things right up to heart attack and death and strokes are, of course, the poorer, the very old, the very young and people from less internet uh, enabled countries or, or people with uh, less access to media information.
1: Yes.
0: Okay, Alex, thank you very much for that. Uh, Well, let's end the uh, segment on COVID with this one. I had a telephone call this morning. I thought the only way I can deal with this is to put it into a little graphic. Let's do this very quickly. The subject was about COVID testing of primary school children. It started off with a young child who had a cough. Uh, The school said she must be tested. The test centre she went to said the results were inconclusive. Uh, The test centre said, consult your GP. The GP said, speak to the hospital. Uh, The hospital said, consult your GP. Uh, The school says, your child cannot come to school. And the parent says, what madness is this? So this is the state of UK at the moment, utter madness. This is calculated. This is not accidental. This is the, the pitiful state that the UK has been reduced to under the leadership of Boris Johnson and his international globalist friends, uh, such as Mr. Mr. Gates.
1: Uh, Yes, well, let's uh, welcome Vanessa onto the programme properly. Uh, Vanessa, just before we get into Syrian issues, uh, what are your thoughts on that?
3: Um, Well, I was just quickly comparing it to a situation I had in Syria where I had... um, recurring kidney problems i went to the doctor i was seen in five minutes i was taken to a general hospital within 10 minutes to receive painkilling injections i was then told i had to have um, shockwave therapy i thought okay that'll be about a week or something like that no at 15 minutes i'll take you there and i'll accompany you (laughs) so i just Like a country that's had 10 years of war, sanctions, destruction of hospitals, um, exodus of doctors and and civilians from the country um, being displaced by by Boris Johnson's globalist alliance um, are are able to treat people better and more logically and more rationally than the UK. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's that's quite amazing. Uh, Okay, now, um, when I was speaking to you last week, uh, I think this had just happened, and I think you weren't too far away from it. So this is ABC News. Syria reports Israel air raid on military post near Damascus. Uh, I believe this uh, is an image from somebody that was that was watching it take uh, watching it take place. Uh, just give yeah. us uh, give us what happened.
3: Um, well, actually, it's two. Um, the first one was on Saturday, which is the image on the right, taken from the area actually where I live. But I happened um, because the area that was targeted, and this is the first time that um, Israel has targeted Syria during the daytime, of course, normally it attacks at night, usually after midnight, between you know the early hours of the morning, as it did the second one that you put up, um, which was this morning. Um, But this particular day on Saturday at quarter past 11 and in the area that they targeted, it's also um, a shared area for horse racing. Um, So the air defense base encircles um, the horse racing track and the horse racing track, particularly at weekends, is used for picnics and gatherings and so on. And, And at the time of this attack, there were actually more than 100 civilians. Um, holding a meeting in an area directly in front of the air defense base. Now, at the time of the attack, I happened to be walking towards this meeting, this civilian meeting with my two dogs. I heard what I thought were jets in the sky um, and and registered the fact that it was a bit strange at this time of day. And they don't actually have um, any of the air force on this disused air base. Of course, now it's only air defense. And suddenly, um, about 100 meters away from me, the first missile hit, a winged missile, surface-to-surface missile from uh, the occupied territories uh, into the air defense base. Um, Allegedly, they targeted uh, a new piece of equipment that was supposed to, if I understand it correctly, kind of bolster the radar equipment. Um, And that was then followed up by another four or five strikes, which are the explosions that you can see in that photo. But I would like to point out that, I mean, this is a time of day when, had it been one hour previously, there would have been civilians everywhere. There would have been horses exercising on the track. There would have been people watching. There would have been people coming just to have a a Saturday morning uh, breakfast uh, in the area itself.
1: Um, okay, well, it's been a while since uh, you've been on the program. So in the meantime, uh, what, has, what is the situation now compared to the last time you were on? Uh, how, how far is it, has it moved towards normality? And uh, I mean, you said that Israel there tends not to attack during the day. So clearly they're attacking at night.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, the attack this morning came in, I think it was around 2 a.m., very similar area. It attacked a bit further west, a a small military base, and it caused material damage. On the Saturday attack, they claimed that there were Hezbollah and Iranian militia there or an ammunition dump, which is absolute um, rubbish. I go to that actual area almost every day, uh, and I've never seen a single Hezbollah or Iranian fighter there. In any case, it's irrelevant because... They're legitimate allies of Syria. They have every right to be on Syrian soil, to defend Syria um, against rogue states like the Zionist entity, like Israel and the US coalition. Um, Things um, since the end of August have been rapidly changing here. Um, At the end of August, there was the uh, reclamation, as I call it, of Dada in the South, Uh, back into Damascus control. Of course, Russia had been brokering the peace deal there. In my view, Russia made a big miscalculation, thinking it could control the armed groups in Dada, bring them under a Russian military division. It failed. Um, They waged war against one another. They carried out more than 2,500 assassinations of people they considered to be uh, loyal to the Syrian government. Fast forward, uh, Dada was reclaimed, and then that had a sort of domino effect in the sense that the U.S. had to partially lift economic sanctions on Syria to allow uh, the energy pipeline to go from Egypt through Jordan, Syria, into Tripoli in Lebanon. Uh, so Syria was brought into, if you like, the trade um, enclosure of Jordan, Egypt, uh, Lebanon, and Syria. Uh, there was then the Assad-Putin uh, summit, uh, followed by the Erdogan-Putin summit. Um, and certainly Putin now is, is sort of registering much more bellicose uh, speeches, where he's saying that, you know, Turkey and the U.S. are in illegal occupation and they should withdraw. Egypt, of course, is also saying that it will normalize relations with Turkey. It fell out over the Turkish support of the Muslim Brotherhood but only on the basis that um, uh, Turkey withdraw from Syria. And so what we've seen um, recently, of course, is a sort of what I call a gritted teeth admission by the MI6 through its uh, linked media agencies um, that uh, normalization with President Assad uh, is inevitable. Um, and we're seeing now here uh, announcements of the tour- tourism industry being revived next year. There are actually uh, tour companies in Berlin, of all places, <laughs> that are starting to organize trips mm-hmm. to the historic sites in Syria. Um, we're seeing, as I say, flights from Jordan um, and Egypt uh, being restarted. Um, we're seeing, of course, the UAE um, although I'd be very careful of sort of reopening um, the door to the UAE, as I consider it a, a, another kind of outreach agency of British and, and American intelligence. Um, but certainly, you know, the, the atmosphere here has changed. I think in one, I mean, it'd be interesting to get um, Alex's view on this, but Damascus, and, and I assume the presidency, really played... A very clever game in Daraa. They they knew the importance of Daraa, but they also knew as part of the Russian deal that Iran and Hezbollah had been forced to distance themselves from the border with Israel. The taking back of control of Daraa in the countryside bordering Jordan and Israel, of course, will open the door again for Iran and Hezbollah to again encroach on, uh, as Israel would say, it, its security. And so I think we we had about a month of quiet of no attacks from Israel while I assume it regrouped itself. Uh, Now we've had, I think, around four attacks in the last uh, four weeks, including, of course, uh, the terrorist bomb attack uh, in the center of Damascus a couple of weeks ago when 14 people were killed um, by IEDs placed on the bottom of a bus early hours of the morning.
1: Uh, Okay, thank you for that. Vanessa, Alex, have you any thoughts?
2: Just, uh, I very much endorse what Vanessa says with regard to how uh, Syria pulled a blinded there. For those who are perhaps new to the, the politics of it, the big claim that was made for decades, particularly by Benjamin Netanyahu, is that the big risk in the whole of the Near East is that a so-called Shiite Crescent or radic- Radical Crescent stretching from Iran over the top of Mesopotamia down towards Lebanon and Israel's northern border was the big risk, and that these mad um, eschatological Shiites, as he often called them, were going to push down and uh, wipe Israel off the map, and that this was all Hezbollah. If you go back, even as far back as 1975, when President Assad's uh, father was in office, of course, the danger was that the PLO, uh, arguably tame terrorists or compromised terrorists, were pushing north, through into Lebanon and ultimately threatening Syria, and particularly threatening to massacre and otherwise harass Christian villages in that part of the country, particularly southern Lebanon. And it was because Assad's government then as now was secular and committed to the upkeep of the religious diversity of the country that the Syrian army was pledged to Lebanon in the first place, which of course uh, was the pretext for the 1982 invasion across the Litani River. So there's a multi-decade. Uh, claim here, a bit like what happens with, you know, invasions of Germany and Russia. The big claim is the nasty people will come from the east and get us, and history shows that actually the invasions are the other way around, west to east. The same thing's going on here. The history is uh, the West's tame terrorists push north from Israel and Lebanon into Syria, and this has been missold as the danger is coming from those very dodgy uh, Shiites uh, pushing from north to south.
1: Um, well, Alex, it's interesting that you phrase it in that way because, uh, and Vanessa, I'm going to uh, apologize now because one of the main points of having you on here was to highlight an article that's in Off Guardian and for some reason, it's not on the list of, of uh, graphics here. So anyway, tell us what the headline of that article is. <laughs>
3: um, I think it's uh, 75 years of regime change in Syria and counting. And basically what I wanted to do um, a number of, even let's say, independent media are maintaining the CIA narratives that enabled the war against Syria in, in the first place. Um, Assad is a tyrant, um, authoritarian regime, police state, uh, et cetera, et cetera, political prisoners everywhere. Um, and It's fine to raise these points, but the fact is that these points are often raised without any historical context. So what I wanted to do is to provide um, a condensed historical context to where we are now inside Syria. And actually, I have to say, even for myself, it was a very interesting exercise. Um, There were aspects that I, I won't say I wasn't totally aware of them, but when I laid them out like this and made all the connections, Um, It became very clear how this was engineered from the very beginning, from, you know, before uh, 1946, when Syria became independent from the French mandate um, leading to today. Um, The connections are there. The U.S. and the CIA have always um, targeted Syria or targeted elements of Syria that are pro-Russia, that are pro-nationalization, that are uh, pro-Pan-Arabism, that are, uh, in their view, pro-communism, of course, because they associate anyone who's pro-Russia as being pro-communism. And that's one of the, you know, as Peter Ford said, the former UK ambassador to Syria, he said, you know, the UK's war against Syria is a vindictive one against the Soviet Union relationship um, with Syria that is a historical one. Um, And so the the common patterns are there, and you see time and time again the CIA engineering um, coup d'etat or assassination of leading figures in Syria in order to impose uh, a regime that is compliant with their foreign policy and will uh, support Israel's security in the region um, and not um, uh, open the door to the, as uh, Alex said, the, the, the Shiite crescent. Um and so it's I, I would highly recommend, even though I wrote it myself, that people do go and look at it because um I tried not to do too much analysis in it. I just left the facts there, and it's quite fascinating when you go back that far and see how we ended up where we are now and how anyone can argue that, that this was not an engineered orchestrated war. I have absolutely no idea. And as Peter Ford said, um Anyone who, who calls Syria a police state should think about the number of attempts to subvert the state. It's hardly surprising that it has to do a lot of policing.
0: Uh, Vanessa, thank you for that. We're trying very hard to get uh, an image up of your article. I think we're nearly yeah, there. We're nearly there. Nearly we're there. Nearly there so <laughs> I'm just going to speak to you for a moment. But it, it's really wonderful the amount of work that you, and, th- and there are many other journalists in the world who are trying to do the right thing and get the truth out about how um, the wider public in the world are given a manipulated story across all of the media. The BBC has got to be one of the worst because it operates so closely with the British intelligence services. But it's taken people like you to get out these stories. And as you say, you've kept it simple so that people can read it and then um, they can they can learn it themselves as opposed to having to be told. I think we've got it now. Well, we do
1: have it. But the key point here is, Vanessa, when I went searching for it just now on, uh, on Google, um, well, um, Off Guardian doesn't seem to appear in the list. It's very strange.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's very odd, isn't it? Google up to its old tricks. Somebody in Syria told me the other day, they tried to uh, find out about me before they interviewed me. And they said, all we could find was articles criticising you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yes. Okay. So, so anyway, that, that is the article, 75 years and counting a history of Western regime change in Syria, part one. So that is part one. What's coming in part two?
3: Well, I got as far as 2011, and and I I think my brain was fried. So I said to Off Guardian, I'm going to have to start from 2011 and come forward showing all the fabrications, as you mentioned, Brian, particularly of the BBC and Channel 4. And can I just mention on the climate change thing, did anybody see Jon Snow, of course, the Channel 4 um, anchors tweet yesterday, which honestly had me in stitches most of the day? Um, he was traveling um, to to the conference and he complained about a climate change causing the leaves and branches on the track and the train slowing down to five miles an hour. And we must do something about this. We must
0: change the world
3: climate. <laughs> into the
1: yes, we got to do that. Right. Now, let's move uh, on to Syria and COVID because I'm interested in, in what, what the situation is. And What fascinated me is when I go to Worldometer uh, and look at the number of cases, uh, coronavirus cases that Syria appears to have had um, since uh, the beginning, since March uh, 2020, it's 43,666 as reported this morning, uh, 2,574 deaths and 26,468 labeled as having recovered. Um, so, clearly the figures aren't quite uh, accurate, you, you know, they, they don't quite add up, so they're they're not quite accurate, but, or are they? Because if we look further on down this page and look at the number of active cases in Syria, what do we find? Uh, well, we find that basically there was nothing happened from February 2020 until uh, the end of August, early September 2020, And then we started to see, well, I guess the winter came along and things got cold and people started having respiratory illnesses. And some of those were labeled as COVID-19. And that raised up to uh, a a peak of just over 5,000 by February, by the end of January, February. And then come the spring, it fell off a cliff uh, so that by uh, the middle of May or so, uh, the number of cases, active cases in Syria was almost zero. Uh, but the problem is this, um, at that low point, and literally the day of the lowest point on this graph, uh, the vaccine rollout began. Now, there isn't a massive vaccination program. Uh, I'm sure you'll t- tell us about this in a second, but there isn't a b- massive vaccination program uh, in Syria at the moment. But on the 17th of May, that v- vaccination rollout began. And from that point to this, we have seen what looks like a fairly exponential rise in cases. Uh, up to the sort of uh, twenty five sorry fifteen thousand uh, level or so uh, at the moment. And uh, well, that seems very coincidental Coincident that it doesn't necessarily mean it was cause, I suppose. but but you know uh, it it certainly looks uh, pretty coincidental. so uh, what is the what is the coronavirus situation? I, mean, I presume you've had all kinds of lockdowns, mask mandates, uh, and everybody required to be vaccinated. That must have happened, surely.
3: Uh, actually, uh, being in Syria is really quite weird. It's, it's, um, I don't know. Corona's kind of passed us by. I mean, yeah, you know, you can go out in the streets and there's a couple of people that are wearing masks and so on. Um, uh, there's just none of the COVID mania here. I mean, from when we, the, the president ended the very short curfew that we had early last year because he decided it was too damaging to the economy, quite rightly. Um, Of course, also those figures, I was just thinking, are probably being inflated by the propaganda about the refugees in Idlib and and the rising cases there, because let's not forget that the funding to the White Helmets now is ostensibly for them to manufacture PPE. Um, under the coronavirus pandemic. So that might also be affecting those figures because I have noticed a sort of uptick in um, uh, COVID-19 among al-Qaeda. Obviously, they're particularly susceptible. Um, But uh, in Syria itself, um, I mean, you're quite right, the the vaccination is not mandatory. It's being recommended by some of the health bodies um, uh, here. But I, I certainly haven't seen, I could have missed it, but I don't think it's mandatory for anyone in public offices, et cetera. Neither are masks, to be honest. I mean, the amount of times that I've gone to a public institution, I've been told on the door that I need to wear a mask. And I've said, no, I can't wear one for medical reasons. And they shrug and let me in. And everyone inside the building is not wearing a mask. So, you know, um, as I said, it, it's, it's it's to some degree, it's I'm in a bit of a bubble here, um, because while they are to some degree towing the line of the World Health Organization um, and even the the FDA uh, to some degree, I feel they have to um, because they're under you know the microscope as far as their their reaction to the entire project is is concerned. But living here. I would say 80% of the people who are below poverty level, thanks to the war and the sanctions, are really their their priority is not Corona. Their priority, as I said, is being able to provide heating for their family. Now it's getting colder, to find food, to find work, uh, to provide a future for their kids, to put their kids through school, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yes. Uh, And just to end this segment, then, Vanessa, from your own uh, website, The War Will Fall uh, from Syria to COVID, the Hollywood narrative managers and uh, well, again, we've we mentioned parallels between the COVID Mm. narratives and and other things. uh, And there seems to be similar parallels here.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, this was the producers um, of uh, the White Helmet movie, the one that won the Oscar. I can't remember if it was, there've been so many. I think it was in 2016. Um, Orlando Van uh, Einseidel, I think his name is, I could have got that wrong, um, has now produced uh, another kind of Oscar nominated, I'm sure, movie about uh, the response to uh, the coronavirus. So as I've said, right from the very beginning of this, why do we still keep talking about Syria? It's because the parallels are very clear. The hybrid war that has been waged against Syria is is coming and has come. Uh, to Western populations now, to the to the global North populations, and I think you know, looking at um, these propaganda wars that have been waged against these countries targeted for regime change or resource plundering, um, we can see very clearly the patterns developing. The same people being used to produce the propaganda to to um, manufacture fear for um, COVID nineteen. And probably also going forward, obviously for the climate change, et cetera. And we need to make those connections because, um, they very clearly show us if this was a real pandemic, we wouldn't need millions or even billions spent on marketing to, 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 um, prove to us that we're in a pandemic. (laughs)
1: That's a very good point. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, look, thank you very much, uh, Vanessa. Thank you. Um, Stay with us if you'd like to. And, uh, Uh, as we as we move on. So uh, that takes us then um, to Alex uh, and this one. Uh, Northland COVID press briefing cut short due to non-accredited media asking non-softball questions. Um, So this is obviously Jacinda.
2: Indeed, uh, the the resplendent and, and fragrant New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who of course cut her political teeth in the office of Tony Blair. Uh, got an unauthorised question from Shane Chaffin uh, in a press call up in the top region of the North Island of New Zealand called Northland and uh, this is uh, produced by Counterspin Media. Uh, if you listen carefully after the uh, softball questions fawning over Jacinda Ardern and her jab the world policy uh, you will hear Shane Chaffin cut in with a couple of questions about the two most jabbed of the major economies in the world, Israel and the United Kingdom, pointing out that all is not rosy in uh, highly jabbed territory. And uh, she didn't take well to it, let's put it that way. You might want to cut this short because it's the first half minute or so that's important.
3: What I'd say is that we're all actually completely on the same page when it comes to driving vaccinations and making sure that we're doing everything that we can to reach people that we need to. This is an issue of, this is an issue. Sir, I'm going going to to ask, I'm going to answer the questions of the accredited media.
2: media. Also in the UK, so Sir, I will shut down the press
3: conference if you do not cease. It's rude to lie Sorry, to our accredited members of uh, the gallery here, we might move to an inside venue. Unfortunately, we've got someone who's disrupting your press conference today. So we might reconvene. Thank you.
2: Can we use the facility here? Nice, isn't it? Uh, just as David Scott was saying, I think it was an extra time on Monday. Uh, the globalist puppets really do crumble under pressure. She really had to lay on the passive aggression uh, to the power of 10 there, didn't she, and and, uh, uh, use the press as a foil. I'm terribly sorry that your event has been spoiled by this wrecker. Uh, He is, of course, a media man, a bit like uh, not everyone's taste, I know, but uh, I I forget the name right now, but uh, the uh, gentleman of Israeli extraction in uh, Australia who works for the Canadian-based rebel media. Uh, who has often been the, um, I think his first name is Avi. I know there are many questions about him, but again, an example of a gentleman who has repeated problems in his case with police, uh, when he's the only person actually out on the street. And he's often told, you're not accredited, you're not real media. In many cases there, it takes a call to head Headshed, uh, you know, a cop shop headquarters to tell uh, the, the police that actually he has constitutional rights anyway, regardless of his accreditation status. So well done there to Shane Chafin.
1: Uh, yeah, and indeed, this is a very important point because uh, the the whole idea of an accredited uh, media, in this is enshrined in the coming online safety bill, um, which is going to have a very chilling effect if it goes through in its present form uh, on what many uh, independent journalists are able to do. But let's Alex move on then to vaccine passports. And uh, in Switzerland, uh, well, those look like concrete blocks that have been placed in front of this restaurant.
2: Yes, these cinder blocks uh, have been placed outside a restaurant in Zermatt down near the Matterhorn, if uh, people know that part of Switzerland near the Italian border, uh, because a restaurant repeatedly defied the cantonal order uh, to uh, be very stringent on its COVID passports checking. And so I can't imagine this happening in in the Netherlands yet, but the authorities came along and it backfired spectacularly. Uh, You can see the French slogan on the bottom row of those blocks there. They're calling the canton where this happened, the canton of Valais, which is well known among the Swiss as being fantastically corrupt. Uh, They're calling this canton an état du uh, 26e rang, so a 26th, um, uh, what's the the, the word, A a 26th tier uh, state because it's the, in other words, the the most corrupt canton in the country. So even other Swiss have been uh, appalled by this. But you see that there are many messages of support uh, on the, the cinder blocks as well. So they're very much a knee jerk reaction by a canton that thinks it's it, the cameras are not watching, that the world isn't watching. Uh, up here in the Netherlands, there we do have now a uh, an entry policy in cafes set by a national government of uh, COVID pass only. And a 94-year-old survivor of the uh, Third Reich occupation of the Netherlands tried in vain to get this uh, letter in to the mainstream press. He tried to get it into what's supposedly the sympathetic paper, Reformatorisch Dachblatt, and they refuted, repeatedly refused to publish it over the summer. So he's gone to a small outlet called Reformiert Fenster to publish this. He's 94-year-old Johannes Kutz from Neumannsdorp. Uh, a town uh, well-known to me, actually. And he writes that in 1943, he was forced to go to uh, work in Germany, one of these forced labor um, razziers that there were. And before he left, he went to the labor exchange uh, in Dordrecht and was uh, slipped uh, an Ausweis, so a Nazi-era ID card by a sympathetic Dutch official, uh, which falsely stated that he uh, was given an exemption to stay behind in the Netherlands and work on his father's farm. And he, that advice basically saved his life for the last two years of the war. And uh, Johannes Cut says that the government is uh, is uh, exerting what he calls a, a, a virtual uh, force, uh, and effectively forcing people to have their papers, this time vaccination, with them for public life. He says, "God forbid, I will never do this. I will never comply. Whatever happens." And he quotes the Bible there. And uh, you know, that that unfortunately is the kind of level of reader's letter that's being sent in but there's no room for it in the mainstream press anymore
1: yeah indeed uh and um up uh, up to finland yes
2: if people go to rapsodia.fi they will find the latest of a series of subtitled speeches in the helsinki parliament by the member of parliament ano turtiainen this one given on the 12th of october and we're not going to play it out but the, uh, the clip is entitled COVID Passport is Worse Than Nazis. I know people roll their eyes, a section of the audience when we make this point, but it's not us making it now. It is members of parliament. It is survivors of the Third Reich. And uh, it is protesters out on the streets. Uh, that, is, that, that is the uh, impressions they are gaining. Oh, I should say in closing that I fully endorse uh, what Vanessa says about the um, Syrian health system in terms of it being very similar the experience that my counterparts in ukraine had when i visited a month ago and i'm getting the impression that the whole belt of countries in that part of the world as soon as you hit the black sea and go east or south are very similar in that if you go to a hospital and they say you need a scan uh, my host in ukraine said well you just go down to the radiography floor pay in cash get the scan on the spot go back up to the treating doctor and he carried on with the consultation i can't imagine that happening in a western country now
1: Uh, No, indeed. Okay, uh, if you like what the UK Column does, and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us there. That would be very much appreciated. Also do share our material on the various platforms. And then very briefly, once again, thank you very much to everybody that's picked up a UK Column hoodie. That has been uh, much appreciated as well.
0: And a big thank you to everybody who's picked up on the GoFundMe for David notes. Where are we now? Well, we're over 14,000 um, pounds. So we're going to say well done to all of the UK column supporters that are, are supporting this particular appeal. And uh, we want to give a very big thank you to all of you who've donated from David's family. I think they, they have been uh, surprised at how well this has started to go. So yeah. sorry, yes. just to
1: clarify, the thank you has come from there. From the, the thank family. yous come from yes. David's
0: family. Yes. yes.
1: Um, okay, now uh, I just want to mention the fact that uh, this gentleman, Niels Melzer, was once again on with Ashen Ratanzi over the weekend, uh, talking about Julian Assange. And just want to very br- briefly mention this and a couple of things that he said. Uh, he said, "If Assange should die in prison, uh, it's effectively been tortured. He's effectively been tortured to death. That's the reality of it, and I'm not exaggerating. Uh, I've been working in areas of war and have a long history of visiting prisoners." Uh, And I visited Julian Assange, he's actually talking about the fact that he visited him last year. uh, And I had two specialized uh, forensic doctors with me and a psychiatrist evaluating him for four hours. Uh, We all independently from each other came to the to the conclusion at the time that his life was in danger. Uh, Julian Assange is not mentally ill. And so he does not belong in the mental institution. Uh, And you cannot you cannot get someone to recover from torture by continuing to torture. him. Uh, And he said, compared to, for example, uh, Augusto Pinochet, uh, where Margaret Thatcher visited him, he brought him a whiskey, he was taken out of prison and put in a a villa uh, and looked after uh, while uh, the uh, attempts to to extradite him were taking place. Uh, So maybe Alex, uh, if I could get your thoughts on this, because of course, what are we talking about when we're talking about torture? Uh, He's in solitary confinement, still uh, largely, and and you know, this has been going on for quite some time. This is what was happening to Melanie Shaw when she was in prison, and of course, the United Nations recognizes this as a form of uh, well, that
0: that was the point I was going to make, Mike. The UN says very clearly that solitary confinement is torture. There's no ifs or buts. Um, so, uh,
1: so the criticism is valid, Alex.
2: Of course, it is, but it's Europe, and especially bourgeois Europe, uh, Austria. Uh, France, Britain, those are the countries where the writers have excelled at describing uh, how people can be mentally and psychologically tortured without leaving a physical scar on the body. You know, that, this is a tradition that goes back to Arthur Köstler and, and many other writers of the, uh, the, the top levels of, of Western European society. It's not a problem in countries where they get away with beating people up with batons. But Niels Meltzer is, is not a beginner in this subject. He's the UN special rapporteur on torture, or has been. And not aware of his current status, but that's his uh, most famous line on the CV. Um, of course, there's a body of law from international down to local level around the world now on just what constitutes torture. I was on with uh, Sonia Poulton on her breakfast show on brandnewtube.com on Monday and making this very point that Britain is still so superior and smug about this that it's it decided not to. It chose and rejected the option of mentioning a ban on torture when uh, funneling through the covert human intelligence uh, sources, Chiz bill which has uh, become an act now, uh, which specifically does not say uh, that uh, government bodies can authorise their agents to torture. It is not excluded. And, you know, just as we got Vanessa on again, was not this the casus belli, the reason why we were told we needed to go to war and indeed about halfway through the war in 2016, that Amnesty International harped back on uh, this particular theme that Syria was a horrible regime and the president and his his, uh, ministers must go because people were being tortured in jail.
1: You're muted, Vanessa, you're muted.
3: <laughs> I did so well. Um, no, as I pointed out in the um, article um, itself, um, also we have to put into context the political prisoners that were actually in jail in Syria prior to 2011, and even Amnesty International admitted that there were fewer Uh, than 2000, that President Assad had released a large number. And of course, also, let's put political prisoners into context. One of the CIA destabilization campaigns was the weaponization of the Muslim Brotherhood factions inside Syria um, during the late 70s to carry out terrorist attacks, just as they have done in in this war, to try and uh, topple the government of Hafiz al-Assad. So many of those political prisoners... Were Muslim brotherhood uh, insurgents who were weaponized by the CIA to carry out the same kind of campaign as they've carried out since two thousand and eleven. So, as I say, you know the, the, all of these accusations are made with very little historical context, so people can actually understand what is going on, and of course you get the the kind of over you get the hyperbole that you always get with this kind of propaganda while, uh, Julian Assange is is effectively being uh, incarcerated and tortured in the UK, as are, of course, many other um, dissidents and political prisoners in the US, and Europe, I'm quite sure, but US definitely, um, and the UK.
1: Yes, indeed.
0: And
3: let's not forget the MI6 rendition and torture, of course. <laughs>
0: well, we... We certainly mustn't forget that, Vanessa. But let's also remember that the UK government has boasted in its own document, Mindspace, the Cabinet Office document, that it can use applied behavioural psychology to get what it wants out of the public. Thank you very much to the viewer that sent us uh, this document through, Applying Behavioural Insights to Organ Donation, Preliminary Results from a Randomised Controlled Trial. So here's the government blatantly using applied psychology, which most of the population is simply unaware of of the use of this. We know that SPY-B, through the government's COVID sage body, used applied psychology to ramp up fear of COVID. Um, This is disgraceful behavior by the British government. But here we want to get hold of people's organs and we're going to use applied psychology Uh, This is just part of this particular document, but it says the Behavioural Insights Team conducted one of the largest randomised controlled trials ever run in the UK in partnership with the NHS Blood and Transplant Service, effectively the Government Digital Service, and also the Department for Health and the Driving and Vehicle Licensing Agency and that was enabling policymakers to compare the effectiveness of new interventions against the status quo. This is the use of psychology which is subliminal to the average person. You have no idea that this psychology is being used on you, and we have a government at the moment which is prepared to torture people or engage in overseas wars. The same government is boasting in its Mindspace document that it can use this type of Uh, psychological uh, application on the public. Yes. Utterly disgraceful.
1: Um, Okay, uh, Alex, I just want to end very briefly on this one. Uh, This is from Spiegel International, and the the headline is The Slippery Dutch Slope From Drug Tolerance to Drug Terror. Uh, And uh, so they're talking about, what do they say, last July, Uh, Investigative journalist uh, Peter de Vries was uh, shot down in Amsterdam. De Vries had not only reported on criminal cases, but it also solved many of them through his uh, television program. And uh, so he was for millions of people, according to the article, uh, proof that a single person can do uh, quite a lot of, uh, uh, make quite a difference. So uh, they say that the shots fired were a demonstration of who is in charge in the Netherlands. Um, they make the point that an a, a, a sorry, an execution uh, of this type would have cost fifty thousand euros, uh, a package deal that includes surveillance, an escape vehicle, a weapon, and the person to pull the trigger. Uh, in the problem areas of southeastern Amsterdam, it says young men are queuing up to commit murder on behalf of the gangs. And they're quoting uh, a Dutch investigator uh, in this, and they say, and who says that for a long time nobody was bothered by the fact that the country's permissive approach to hash in marijuana had helped brutal mobsters become powerful and that gangs had also begun uh, carting tons of hard drugs through the country alongside the soft ones. Uh, And they're talking about uh, Moroccan dominion, uh, sorry, Moroccan uh, dominated uh, mokro gangs as they're called. Um, And uh, one such gang's motto was whoever talks must go. So in other words, every journalist, every prosecutor, every lawyer, Uh, uh, and so on. So uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this, as someone living in the country, as just how far this has gone uh, already.
2: Very far, Mike, without being alarmist. I'm here in an an ordinary workaday Dutch city centre. Directly over the road from us was a gentleman who was uh, a small-time drug pusher. And uh, when we had, you know, we actually managed to get uh, filmed evidence of him doing deals And uh, someone else running away with his stash. And we sent that into the police and they came running. And uh, quick as a flash, nothing happened. And the police rather um, arrogantly and and patronisingly explained to my wife as though she were a little girl, look, dearie, if we go after this guy, someone else will just set up in a different part of town. And it dawned on me then that, okay, the Dutch police are, as usual, a bit more honest than other nations, but it's a general Western European problem. The Dutch are cursed by their logistic bounty, being at the the, the sweet spot of everything that moves in Europe. So they're always going to be plagued by drugs gangs, thinking this is the way into the European continent because of all the estuaries and quiet ports. They have an excellent road and rail infrastructure. But no, it's the 50-year permissiveness, uh, as Peter Hitchens quite correctly pointed out, the slippery slope is behind it. And yes, the, the nation was shocked when Peter R. de Vries was gunned down in broad daylight. But I'm afraid it's just the most climatic example of something we've seen for a couple of years now. Uh, the shock horror that's shown on TV is a bunch of Turks come and shoot up an Amsterdam warehouse in broad daylight, the so-called Mokro Mafia, which is the Rotterdam area. Moroccans dominated, the, uh, supposedly take action. The Albanians are brought in. It's fine. Uh, it's, it's all grist to the mill of the mainstream media, as long as the grainy CCTV shots of assassins nonchalantly walking away with a cigarette butt between their lips. As long as those guys have got tanned skin, as long as they're brown, that's OK. The question that's never asked is, who are the establishment figures who commissioned the death of investigative journalist Peter R. de Vries? Uh, That's certainly, to use the modern phrase, the word on the street. And I'm afraid it goes up very high. And as long as convenient Moroccans, Turks and Albanians uh, are there as scapegoats, nobody in the mainstream is going to raise that issue.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much for that. And uh, look, we'll just end. Uh, Alex, you need to explain this for us because it's uh, not in English.
2: Sent in by a viewer fluent in Italian, a report on the southern Russian city of Rostov-on-Don, where I know that we have viewers who have been in touch with us. This is uh, coming separately from that viewer. In Rostov-on-Don, there was a queue for the off-licence and... uh, two gentlemen of of low fortune uh, got into a a friendly debate while waiting for their uh, alcoholic relief uh, on the the virtues of Prussian philosopher Immanuel Kant. And uh, things got rather heated when one began to to praise transcendental dialectics. Uh, This ended with the aggrieved fellow philosopher in the debate pulling out a pistol from his coat and uh, shooting at the debating partner who apparently was wounded, but not gravely. Uh, It is unknown, at least to this Italian news agency, whether or not the pistol brandisher uh, has been prosecuted or not. But it can all happen in a Russian off-licence queue.
1: Excellent. And uh, and we're going to end with, uh, with this one.
2: Yes, a lady in a protest crowd holding up the phrase communism, which she's misspelled, never mind, you masked for it. I think that's particularly apt, given what Vanessa was rightly saying earlier in the news about anyone who's not with us being branded a communist, when in fact the real communism is right here at home.
1: Yes, indeed. Okay, brilliant. All right,
0: well, uh, thank you both for joining us. Uh, uh, Interesting news. I've learned a lot out of your comments, both of you, so thank you very much for that. I just wanted to end with the fact that uh, one of the comments in our chat box was that the Amish presumably the Amish community, presumably in in America were asked why they had no COVID. And they said, Well, we don't have any TVs, so we didn't know about it. And uh, whether that little anecdotal story is true or not, I don't know. But it's, uh, it's got a nice ring to it. Yeah, we'll end there. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Whether you're a viewer and listener in UK, or you're one of the growing number of people overseas. We love to have you. Thanks for joining us.
1: Uh, stay on the UK column live stream for extra in a second, and uh, otherwise we'll see you at one pm as usual on Friday. Yeah. Bye bye.